Welcome to this week's episode of Off the Assembly Line. I'm your host, Rebecca Reed, and every week I sit down for possibility-sparking conversation with innovative educators and entrepreneurs who are bringing the future to education, one beautiful disruption at a time. Hey guys, so glad to be back with you for this week's episode of Off the Assembly Line. This week we're doing something a little bit different. I am talking with you directly, um, and I'm talking a little bit about why the Off the Assembly Line podcast exists. I had planned to do this episode um, as the 10th Off the Assembly Line episode and release it next week. But given that it's Thanksgiving week and I am feeling all kinds of grateful right now for so many different reasons, I wanted to go ahead and do this this week. I want to tell you a little bit about my story and how I came to this point And then I want to talk a little bit about the story of our U.S. education system, where we've been, how we got to where we are now, and where we could go. So let's jump in. I never planned to be an educator. I actually never planned to be in education, but I did want a life of impact. And in my mid-20s, as I asked myself, during an extended period of soul searching where I wanted to invest my professional life, where I wanted to make my contribution. All of the answers kept pointing back to the K-12 education system. And I was confused at first, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized that there's no other institution on earth that so significantly and formatively impacts so many people. And we haven't gotten it right yet, but what if we could? So when I made the career change to education in my late 20s, I dove headfirst into the ocean of potential that this gap represented. The systemic challenges within the education system weren't a secret, right? Visit any classroom, speak to any educator, uh, parent a school-aged child, and you'd bump into something that didn't seem quite right. Scan the workforce horizon, and you'd be puzzled by a growing gap between education and industry. But each barrier, constraint, challenge, or limit within the current state, uh, I really saw as possibility in disguise. And so this is where I dove in. And over the last seven years, I've been privileged to work with thousands of teachers, administrators, students, business leaders, and industry professionals across the U.S., all who are highly invested in making waves in this system that we know needs change. I started first in the classroom as an elementary teacher um, and then a STEM specialist and had an awesome opportunities to work with kids uh, kindergarten through fifth grade, which was just such a joy. Um, and then I had the opportunity to step into roles uh, developing and training teachers and teacher leaders, which was a new kind of joy. In 2016, I left the classroom to join STEM Education Leader Project Lead the Way um, and spent time working on large-scale program developments for teacher professional development and training delivery and curriculum advisory teams. And during this time, I discovered an unseen but very real intersection where education, innovation, and the real world collide. This was where the changemakers were, and I was meeting people who were creating 
incredibly disruptive innovation um, on large scales and on small scales in the classroom, from outside the classroom. And I had a light bulb. The future of education is already here. The changemakers are already bringing students off the assembly line. People are already creating disruption that moves the education system, at least in their space, out of the factory. And if we want to create change on a larger scale, we have to do it together. But here's the other side to creating change, especially change that lasts. Sometimes if you want to know where to go, you've got to know where you've come from and how you got to where you are. So we're going to take a look back at the beginnings of the U.S. education system and look at a few of the stories that answer the question, how did we get here in the first place? Here we go. Horace Mann is commonly known as the father of the common school, or what we now know as the U.S. public education system. In 1837, Horace was named the secretary of the newly created Massachusetts Board of Education, and he established principles right away for what he called the common school, a school that would provide all children with a common learning experience and equip them for the needs of society and the workforce, regardless of class or background. A few years after this, he paid his own way for a trip to Europe where he would explore the school systems in several different countries. American educators at the time were particularly fascinated by German education, but Mann was taken with the highly standardized paramilitary system he saw in Prussia and immediately instituted that and began evangelizing his version of the Prussian system upon his return to the U.S. The system Mann envisioned and established was non-sectarian, paid for by an interested public, and delivered high-quality instruction through well-trained professional teachers. Mann was a visionary who hoped the common school system might, quote, equalize the conditions of men, unquote, and move society as a whole forward. He also believed that a student's character was just as important as their academic knowledge and skills. And the common school system could help reform students who didn't receive proper discipline at home. And so, right from the start, the school system was built to instill values like obedience, the recognition of authority, and promptness in attendance. In an innovative move, the school schedule was organized according to bell ringing, which would help students, of course, prepare for future employment in the industrialized workforce. It was revolutionary. Mann had strong beliefs when it came to teacher instruction as well, including the belief that women were much better suited to be teachers than men, and so he also created a teacher training and education system called the Normal School. The Normal School prepared the mostly female teachers to deliver highly uniform instruction to students no matter where they would be teaching, and instill the prize values of the common school system in all students. With industrialists on his side, Man's common school system spread from Massachusetts throughout the U.S. and was eventually adopted by all 50 states over the next 60 or so years. Let's fast forward to 1914 and the creation of the test that would become the foundation for standardized testing as we know it and standards-based education reform that we've known for the last 40 or so years. That year, Frederick J. Kelly finished his doctoral dissertation arguing against the subjectivity and how teachers marked papers and the amount of time that the marking takes. In order to solve this, he developed the silent reading test, 
a multiple choice test that was painstakingly crafted to eliminate all ambiguity and variability on the part of student answers and provide teachers the speediest possible grading. In the machine-driven world of 1914, it seemed to be the perfect test. Uniform, reproducible, and impervious to location or facilitator. In her book, Now You See It, Kathy Davidson explains that Kelly's test was as close to the Model T form of automobile production as an educator could get in this world. The Fordist ideal of any color you want so long as it's black. Educators argued that Kelly's test ignored higher order thinking altogether and focused only on memorization and discrete information. But in an age where the number of public schools had leapt from 500 in 1880 to 10,000 in 1910, tools for efficiency were really impossible for leaders to ignore. The silent reading test was widely adopted as the basis for standardized assessment, and it was eventually adapted in 1926 for the College Entrance Examination Board and what would be called the Scholastic Aptitude Test. That's right, the SAT. Now, students could take the same test across city and state lines, be compared objectively to each other and against standardized metrics and processed as, well, numbers. Sound familiar? The rest, unfortunately, is history. But here's a crazy twist to that story. By the late 1920s, Frederick J. Kelly had reached the presidency of the University of Idaho and had apparently changed his tune regarding standardization sometime in the previous 10 years. His personal writings at the time, and later in life, don't mention the creation of the test or its legendary status, and he began instituting education reform at the university, focusing on critical thinking, liberal arts, and strongly resisted early academic or technical specialization. College is a place to learn how to educate oneself rather than a place in which to be educated, Kelly insisted. Now that is a different tune altogether. But the multiple choice monster that Kelly had created had long been beyond his control. And by this time, the education environment was permeated by specialization and standardization. The roots had already gone deep and wide. In 1930, faculty members at the University of Idaho protested his reform so strongly that Kelly was actually asked to resign the presidency. When the nation needed compliant, efficient, technically specialized workers, leaders like Horace Mann and Frederick J. Kelly responded with well-intentioned innovation that in many ways was effective for the day. And this is where the real issue lies. It's 2019, and our schools still look eerily similar to the common schools of the 1800s, and the system as a whole still runs on standardized machinery that's 100 years old. The system very intentionally built to mirror and feed into factories now operates in a world that desperately relies on adaptability, personalization, and the ability to deal in complexity. Conformity and uniformity no longer meet the need, and we all feel it. In his epic must-read manifesto, Stop Stealing Dreams, and when I say must-read, I mean go get it now, Google Stop Stealing Dreams by Seth Godin. It is a 36,000-word manifesto, and I guarantee is well worth your time. In his seventh essay in the manifesto, he says this, Mass customization of school isn't easy. Do we have any choice, though? 
If mass production and mass markets are falling apart, we really don't have the right to insist that the schools we design for a different era will function well now. And of course it doesn't. But you know this, and that's why you're listening. And this is where I get really excited. Because the story about Horace Mann, the story about Frederick J. Kelly, the reality of where we are sitting right now is not the end of the story. In fact, even though we're sitting in uh, a painful moment, and a lot of us have felt the pain from um, this ill-fitting system in a lot of ways and very, very close to home, even though we're looking out at urgently needed change, I think what we have is opportunity, is possibility. And that's what this podcast is all about. So together, we're talking about what we can do. Uh, We know it needs to change. For many of you listening, the stories that I just shared may not have even been a surprise. You might know those stories very well. You might have said, yes, yes, yes. That's why I'm listening to this podcast. We're here together talking about what we can actually do to create real and meaningful change. Now, why is systemic change so tough? There are cultural reasons for sure, but let's just take a minute and look at some of the systemic roots that make um, sweeping, effective change really tough. Probably the biggest root cause here, if we were going to sort these roots by size, would be the decentralization of the U.S. school system. It's not necessarily a bad thing, uh, but it does make sweeping, connected, cohesive uh, system improvement really difficult, right? It's interesting if we look at the example of Horace Mann and the sweeping reform of the common school system, which uh, was in a lot of ways putting something in place that never existed before rather than bending a system that was already um, functioning at a mass level, which uh, is generally a lot harder to do. But even for Horace Mann, it was upwards of 65, 66 years before all 50 states had adopted the common school model. Just think about that for a minute. Let that set in. That is a long time Uh, to bring something into existence uh, at a national level. Now, let's fast forward to now. We've had this machine running for the better part of two centuries. We try to bring massive change to that system. That's a lot harder to do. And I think we've got to acknowledge it. Now, even in this decentralized structure, local change is still really tough, um, as as many of you well know, even at the state level, the district level, sometimes even at the school level. I mean, let's even go more micro than that. Sometimes it's even difficult to be able to institute the change you want in your own classroom, right? Um, why is this? There's There's a lot of reasons for this. But again, I think a large root here is that those who are making decisions are often far removed from the active reality of learning and teaching. And then the reality is that, especially the higher up you go in terms of decision-making authority, um, decision-makers often have incentive for decisions that go beyond simply what is best for students and what is best for educators. And these are just two of a whole lot of routes, and I don't want to go into detail um, on those right now, but the, the 
point of all of this is to say, there's not going to be one solution to our systemic problems because there is not only one root and because those roots are not all collected in one place. And so it's going to take a lot of change makers. It's going to take you disrupting the system where you are and all of us working collectively more and more to create true revolutionary systemic change. Now, I have at times in my life been called an idealist. Uh, You might even be thinking the same thing as you're listening, but I honestly wouldn't call myself an idealist. I would call myself a possibilist. I do see things for what they are, and I feel the stomach knots and the frustration and the times of hopelessness that many of you do. But what makes this community different, and the reason the podcast exists, is because we see what is possible. I mentioned at the beginning of this episode that I have worked with so many change makers across the domain of education that I honestly can't help but see what is possible. But I believe the biggest need right now is in raising the level of visibility. So conversation, connection, and real co-creation can follow. Because the other thing that I've seen as I've worked with so many innovators is we're reinventing the wheel a lot. We're doing the heavy lifting of first-time research, learning, and creation a lot. And we could be connecting with the ones who have already blazed a trail. We could be adapting proven models for the kids in our own state, in our own district, in our own classrooms. We could be building on the innovation of others and creating new innovation ourselves. But we can't do any of this if we can't see it happening. And that's why this podcast exists. We've got to find the others. We've got to improve the models, innovate on innovation, and we've got to amplify our collective voice. Here's my belief. When the changemakers and innovators begin connecting with each other, the needed disruption is going to grow from a steady drip, drip, drip to a rushing waterfall. And that is when the tide will start to turn. So who am I giving an A to this week? I am so excited to be answering this question that I normally ask uh, and love to hear our guests answer. Um, But here's who I'm giving an A to. I'm giving an A to the possibilists. I'm giving an A to those of you who see a world filled with constraints and instead of stopping there, are able to turn the constraint on its head and see the unique possibility that exists. That is how we move the needle forward. And there are so many of us in the world Um And so if this is you, I salute you. Thank you for seeing the possibility in the world. Thank you for not giving up. Thank you for continuing to pour into students. Thank you for continuing to pour into educators. Thank you for doing education differently. I am so filled with gratitude um, for you and for those who are part of this community, uh, for the people that I've gotten to know over the last several months, and um, for those that I continue to connect with. It's just been a fantastic ride so far, and I've got some incredible guests for you coming up in the next couple of weeks, and I can't wait for what 2020 is going to bring. Um, Set your intention now or begin thinking about your intention for the new year. What do you want 2020 to be about for you? Um, How do you want to plant your foot and move forward into the year? We'll definitely be talking about that more in the coming weeks, but I just wanted to plant the seed for you now. 
I hope you have an incredible week. I hope that you are able to take some time to really reflect on the things that you are grateful for and not just uh, the standard things maybe. But where can you find gratitude where you haven't thought to look before? Where can you be surprised by gratitude? That's my challenge for you this week. And whether you're celebrating Thanksgiving or not, I hope that you have a beautiful week, a week full of gratitude and thoroughly enjoy it. Until next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Off the Assembly Line. You can find detailed resources in the show notes or at offtheassemblyline.co. If you're enjoying the show, leave a review and share it with someone who needs to hear it. I'd also love to hear from you. What topics are you interested in? What change makers do I need to know about and have on the show? What questions do you have? If you go to offtheassemblyline.co and scroll to the bottom of the page, you'll see a form that lets you tell me all about it. Thanks for helping me build the Off the Assembly Line community one week at a time. Keep seeing the possibilities, reflect with gratitude, and go make a ruckus.